In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. You know, if you want her to feel love, you got to speak her love language. You want him to feel love, you got to speak his love language. Men in the Arena Army. I salute you. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men Arena Podcast. I'm Jim Ramos. So, hey, I'm excited about our new guest today and friend, Gary Chapman. Gary is 82 years young. He lives in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He's been married to his beautiful wife, Carolyn, for over 50 years. Gary has a passion for helping people form lasting relationships. He's also known around the world as a marriage counselor, director of marriage seminars, and his nationally syndicated radio programs. They air nationally on Moody Radio uh, Network to over 400 affiliate stations. Uh, Gary's authored many books, including Five Love Languages that sold over 12 million copies, as I mentioned earlier. He's also the co-author of Choose Greatness, 11 Wise Decisions That Brave Young Men Make. And we're going to dive into that a little bit this morning, but it's really exciting to have our guest on the show, Gary Chapman. All right. Well, Gary, it's great to have you on our show. And hey, before we get into the questions about your books, can you share us a little bit about your story and your journey? Sure, Jim. It's great to be with you today. Yeah, I have been uh, involved in marriage and family counseling for over 40 years. Wow. And uh, been married to the same woman for over 50 years. Congratulations. <laughs> the early years, not so good. The latter years, much, much better. <laughs> you just described my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that may be why God pushed me into counseling is because I had so many struggles in the early years of our marriage. So I have a lot of hope for couples, even when they've lost hope. I have hope for them. And, of course, uh, my books have basically all grown out of uh, my, my counseling ministry. So, you know, it's been a great life and uh, absolutely incredible to help couples learn how to make marriage what God intended it to be, a loving, supportive, caring relationship. And when we have that, uh, then marriage is what God intended it to be. Wow. I, 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 man, you're 82 years old. Uh, it's funny because my, my kids asked my wife the other day, I have three sons, 22, 24, and 26. When's dad going to retire? And she goes, dad's never going to retire. And so to see a guy like you who's vibrant and just still crushing it and writing books is, is inspiring. So I really do appreciate that. You said something. Uh, I want to go back and quote you real quick. So when I first, my wife and I, in fact, I wrote a book and in the book, we talk about our first couple years of marriage. And in the book, I said something like this, I married an angel and I woke up with Satan. And my wife and my wife said she married her dream man and woke up in a nightmare, and so so we struggled as well. And then once I 
had an, an experience where I stepped into manhood at age 30 as a pastor, our marriage really changed. We've got a wonderful marriage of over 20, 28 years now. But my question yeah. is, is what, what was your biggest struggle when you first got married? You said you had big struggles. Yeah, well, mainly she wouldn't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how we can train that out of them. <laughs> you know, I knew how to have a good marriage. If she'd have listened to me, she wouldn't listen to me. <laughs> but, you know, uh, yeah, we, we, we were just very different. Our personalities were very, very different. We didn't know how to solve conflicts. You know, when you're in love, you don't think you'll have any conflicts. Yeah. And, uh, so we ended up arguing with each other. I remember one night it was pouring down rain and we were in the middle of an argument. She walked out the front door into the rain. And I thought, man, this is bad. <laughs> and it was bad. <laughs> oh, man. Well, so, you know, it's interesting. So one of the things I tell people when I do marriage counseling is I tell them love is not enough. There, there's yeah. something that has to happen beyond love. What do you think about that statement? Well, I think it all depends, obviously, on how you how you describe love or yeah. how you uh, definition of love. But you know, if for me, love is an attitude of service, and this is what really changed my life when when I just finally said to God, I don't know what else to do. I mean, it's not getting any better, and I've done everything I know to do. It's like a picture came in my mind of Jesus on his knees washing the feet of his disciples, and I just heard God say, "That's the problem." You don't have the attitude of Christ. You know, you're not serving her. Hit me like a ton of bricks, you know? And I just said, Lord, forgive me. Because I was, I was in seminary studying to be a pastor. And I said, <laughs> forgive me. With all my study in Greek and Hebrew and theology, I missed the whole point. <laughs> and I said, Lord, give me the attitude of Christ. And God changed my heart and gave me a desire to serve her. And I started asking her three questions. Honey, what can I do to help you? How can I be a better husband? How can I make your life easier? And she started giving me answers. <laughs> Looking back on it, she was telling me her love language. Uh -oh. I didn't know anything about love languages in those days, but she was telling me her love language. And when I started serving her, it didn't, it didn't happen overnight, but about three months, she started asking me those three questions. How can I be a better wife? And how can I help you? You know, how, how, how can I make your life easier? You get it going that way, you're going to have what God intended marriage to be. Oh, that's so powerful. I was uh, at a Promise Keepers event in L.A. Coliseum in 1995 with a disastrous marriage. Been married, well, got married three years at the time. And a preacher kept screaming, you've got to out love and out serve your wife. And it was so much, I just kind of checked out. And about three quarters ways th through that sermon, God spoke to me. Uh, he said something that changed my marriage forever. And guess what it was? You got to out love and out serve your wife. Mm -hmm. And so that mm -hmm. is really cool. So, hey, can, so I, I, I mistakenly thought that you sold 12 million copies of your book, of The Love Lang Five Love Languages. In truth, you've sold 13 million in the English language alone. Yeah. Yeah. What's the total book sales in all languages? Oh, I don't know, to be honest with you. But it's been published <laughs> in over 50 languages, so I don't know. I don't know what the total is. Oh, man. Well, you know, I want to talk to you about your book, your latest book, Choose Greatness. But be, I, I can't get you on the show without just having you just give us a little bit of love with the, with the book, uh, Five Love Languages. Can you unpack yeah. the evolution of that book? And, and then I'll ask you about the languages themselves. Yeah, it came out of my counseling. Couples would sit in the office and one of them would say, I just feel like he doesn't love me or she doesn't love me. And the other would say, 
I don't understand that. I do this and this and this. Why would you not feel loved? And I knew people were sincere and they were missing each other. And eventually I just sat down and read about 12 years of notes that I made and asked myself, when someone said, I feel like my spouse doesn't love me, what did they want? What were they complaining about? And their answers fell into five categories. And I later called them the five love languages. And I started using it in my counseling. You know, if you want her to feel love, you got to speak her love language. You want him to feel love, you got to speak his love language. And I would help couples discover each other's language, challenge them to go home and try it. Sometimes, Jim, they would come back in three weeks and say, Gary, this is changing everything. I mean, the whole climate's different now. Then I started using it in small groups, and the same thing happened. It was probably five years later when I thought, you know, if I could put this concept in a book, write it in the language of the common person, leave out the psychological jargon, maybe I could help a lot of couples I would never have time to see in my office. So that's how, that's how it happened. And uh, it's just been exciting to see how many marriages have been healed uh, by understanding and applying this concept. Well, it's interesting because I know for me, my wife, if she says, you're awesome, or I'm so blessed, I am a words of affirmation guy. In fact, yeah. my ministry, when I get emails and different things, they just take me to a whole nother level. And I'm an access service guy. So I, I like that when people are, are willing to do that. My wife is a quality time and a physical touch. So every oh. night she gets a foot rub. I mean, literally almost every night of the week and yeah, the time yeah. thing. And so how did you, how did you come to define these well, basically, they just kind of jumped off the page as I was doing that. You know, there's words of affirmation, you know? The, yeah. The proverb yeah. says life and death is in the power of the tongue. For some people, if you verbally affirm them, man, they feel loved. Others, it's active service, doing things for them. Others, it's gifts. The gift says, they were thinking about me. Look what they got from me. And then there's quality time, giving them your undivided attention and then physical touch. And, and you know, people have said to me, is there a sixth love language? And I said, well, I, I haven't discovered one. One guy <laughs> told me it was chocolate. And I said, well, <laughs> if they bought it, it's a gift. If they made it, it's an act of service. <laughs> so so is how do you know or identify what somebody else's love language is. So how would I, how would I identify that? Well, three, three simple ways. One is observe their behavior. How do they respond to you and other people? If they're always giving affirming words, that's probably what they want. If they're always doing things for people, then acts of service is likely their language. So, and then the second is what do they complain about? The complaint reveals the love language. If they say, I can't ever please you, they're telling you words of affirmation is their language, and they're not hearing it. If you if you go on a business trip and come home and they say, you didn't bring me anything, <laughs> they're telling you gifts is their language. What do they complain about? What do they request of you most often? If they're saying, honey, can we take a walk after dinner tonight? They're asking you for quality time. You put those three things together, you can pretty well figure it out. Obviously, you can also go online and take a free quiz at languages.com and that will also help you. It'll be a good source of discussion if both of you take the quiz. Well, that's. I'm glad you brought that point up. So you said the three ways to identify this are one, how they live their life. I don't know how you would coin that or how the example they set. So I have found that people who 
tend to serve really well, that, that reciprocation is there. They want you to do that for them. So there's a reciprocal yeah. uh, expectation there. So that's one way. And then what they complain about. So us as husbands, we need to really listen to our wife when she's saying, talk to me, as Mark Gunger would say. Uh, and then and then what they request the most often. Yeah. Oh, that's so powerful. I, I really appreciate you letting me kind of dive into that real quick. That is just such a great and monumental work. And so, but I, but I, the book that I have in hand is your book, uh, True, Choose Greatness, Wise Decisions That Brave Young Men Make to Coach Their Sons. Can you walk us through uh, how that book come, came to be? Yeah, I wrote this book with uh, Clarence Schuler, who is a good friend of mine. He's African-American. And I met him when he was 16 years old. I was a youth minister in church, an all-white church. This was way back in the 60s, uh -huh. uh, late 60s. And uh, he and his buddy walked in, about 100 white kids. And these two African-American kids walked in. And our kids had invited them. And so I met him there. And he started coming to our meetings. It was in a gymnasium. Uh -huh. And we started coming to our meetings. And uh, about uh, a year and a half later, he went on a retreat with us. And accepted Christ and uh, so I just started spending time with him and his father died about six months after that oh wow and I kind of met his mother and his sister and kind of became you know a father figure for him and we've been friends all these years and he now has a counseling ministry himself and has written other books himself so we teamed up to say you know what if we wrote a book to young men approximately ages 11 to 17 or 18 about making decisions because both of us, our hearts were broken at the number of young men whose lives are absolutely ruined by the time they get to be 18 yeah. because of the decisions they made. So we wrote this book geared to those young men. And if they have a father uh, in the home, we're encouraging them to read it with their father and discuss the questions at the end of the chapters with their father. They don't have a father and their mother can help them find a trusted man, you know, uh, or maybe the church can help them. Uh, it's a book that they can read together. But even if they read it by themselves, it's challenging them to make wise decisions in these years. And if they do, it's going to tremendously impact the rest of their lives. Yeah, I really appreciate that. So I have a saying that I've learned from an older gentleman, and I've found it to be true in my life and the lives of the guys I work with, that life is more serious than we think when we're young. Uh, and on yeah. pa page 10 of your book, you said this, we are now looking back on our own lives and realize that many of our most important decisions were made when we were teenagers. So as you counsel people and as you work with people, do you find men or women doesn't matter, women doesn't matter, but do you find that a lot of the issues they're bringing to you in the counseling setting go back to those early days? What are, what are you finding? Yeah, absolutely. Many, many, many times the things we're struggling with at 30 and 35, the seeds of those things were back in those teenage years. Either we made decisions that are causing this or other people did things to us that we're still struggling with and we've never dealt with those things. So, yeah, I think, you know, in those years from 11 to 18, 
the brain is changing, the body is changing, yeah. you're going through all kinds of things, and you have all these feelings, negative and positive, and also the parent's impact can either be negative or positive. It's a tremendous time in the life of a, of a young man. And so, yeah, sometimes we're looking back and say, you know, I made the wrong decision. You know, I wish I had not done that. Here's the results. And we don't think about it when we're teenagers, that every decision we make has a consequence, yeah, either negatively or positively. And so we're trying to help the teenager and the young guy look seriously at the decisions they're making. So you said every decision we make. So what, what would you say that decisions compounded over time equate to? Basically, they equate to a, life, a lifetime, a lifestyle. Yeah. You know, every decision has positive or negative consequences. We get toward the end of life and we're looking back. And we're either looking back on a life that we feel really good about. I don't mean we don't have some regrets because none of us are perfect. But we're looking back with a lot of satisfaction or we're looking back with a lot of pain. Yeah. And it, it, deter- it was determined by the decisions we made on the journey. And would you say that that person who's looking back on a lot of pain, would you say that a hurting person like that tends to hurt more people? Typically, that's exactly right. That, that, that if we have been hurt, we likely hurt other people. And, uh, you know, there's just something about being hurt as a young man that is deep inside that he carries into adulthood. And that's where if, if they can get counseling during those early years, if they've been, let's say they've been abused, you know, sexually or otherwise, uh, verbally by their parents, or maybe they've been abandoned by their father, Uh, sometimes the mother, and they've gone through that. If they can get the help of someone else, you know, typically a godly man, then they can heal much earlier in the process and not carry all of that for a lifetime. Yeah, that's that's really powerful. So I read this from the lens of an adult with adult children. And so when I, I thought about this, our audience is mostly men in the stress bubble of life. They're 30 to 55 raising kids. How would you encourage that guy when he picks up a copy of Choose Greatness? How would you encourage him to bring his son through the 11 choices? Yeah, I, I think what I would say, first of all, is uh, read the book yourself so you understand the concepts we're dealing with and the topics we're dealing with. And then you you obviously are the judge on when you think your son is ready for this. I mean, son, listen, at 11 years of age, many kids have already been exposed to almost everything. Absolutely. But, but you know, as a father, you, you would know. And then at that juncture, you say, you know, I've I got a book here that I really think will help us. And I'm going to ask you to read this first chapter. And uh, I've already read the first chapter. I'm going to ask you to read the first chapter and answer the questions at the end of the chapter. And uh, and when you get through, uh, we're just going to sit down and talk about this because I think it can really help us. You see, it's not just help you, it's help us. Absol- oh, that's good. You don't want to think, you know, you, i got to fix you. No, no, it's going to help us. Uh, and, and, and so you don't say the whole book to start with. You just read the first chapter. And then you say, you know, what, what do you think? Would you like to read the second chapter? Chances are he would. <laughs> well, because he's got time with dad. Yeah. Well, someone yeah, once said, I can't remember who it was, but someone once said, we live life looking forward. We learn from it looking backward. And I think yeah. that even as a father unpacks this with his son, 
he can go back and say, you know what? Uh, I wish I would have known this. Or uh, Clarence wrote that about his education. I wish I would have known this about education. I wish I would have had this in my repertoire. So the the 11 wise decisions that young men make to choose greatness are, and I'm just going to list them, choose to seek wisdom from parents and trusted adults. That's one. Number two, choose to seek knowledge through education. Number three, choose to make technology work for you. Number four, choose to be successful, work hard. Number five, choose to respect girls and women. Number six, choose to be sexually responsible. Number seven, choose to live longer and happier. Part A deals with alcohol and drugs. Uh, Choice number eight is part B, which is uh, dealing with alcohol and, I'm sorry, tobacco and marijuana. Decision nine is choose to build diverse friendships. Decision 10 is choose to uh, invest time helping others, which I love. And then, which of course, acts of service. Of course, I love that one, right? And then decision (laughs) 11 is choose to discover the truth about God. So I want to go back to uh, page nine of your book. And in page nine, you said our definition, and I'm really intrigued by this term greatness. I've got a book, a 365-day devotional coming out that's just quotes of great men who lived great lives. So I'm really intrigued by this concept of greatness. So I'm scratching my own itch right now, uh, Gary. Uh, You said on page nine, our definition of a great life is taking what you have and using it to enrich the lives of others. So, So right there, you defined a great life. So contextually speaking, if I take that definition and I say, how would you define greatness? How is the word greatness different from a great life and how are they similar? Well, I think basically uh, they're very similar. What we're saying is that, you know, people people sometimes think, you know, a great life is being a millionaire. A great life is having this and that and the other thing. You know, Jesus said clearly Life does not consist in the abundance of the things a man possesses. That's not where life is found. Life is found in relationships. Yep. And, and it's taking what you have, what God has given you, and we're all unique. Every young man's unique. Every older man is unique. It's taking what we have and using it to enrich the lives of other people. That's precisely what Jesus did. <laughs> that is so That is Well, I mean, wealth is found in relationships. And speaking of yeah. relationships, your choice, number one, is choose to seek wisdom from parents or trusted adults. And again, dealing with relationships, on page 15 of your book, you said this. Life was never, this is so powerful, life was never meant to be lived alone. As young men, we need the wisdom of our fathers and mothers. Otherwise, we make decisions based solely upon our feelings rather than upon our facts. We don't have a problem with that in this world. (laughs) Talk to us about facts and feelings and why we need uh, older people in our lives to offer that wisdom to us. You know, what we've done in our culture, we have exalted feelings above reason and fact. And you hear, you hear adults say, I've got to be true to my feelings. I don't love you anymore. I'm out of here. <sighs> you know, feelings are fine. I mean, God has feelings also. We're, we're made in his image. Nothing yeah. wrong with feelings, but we don't live by feelings. We live our lives based on truth. And, you know, typically parents are older than children and and there's a good chance they're wiser. Yeah. So as a young man, look to your parents, look to your mom and dad, 
to learn and maybe grandparents or maybe uh, maybe an older man in your church that teaches a class for young men uh, ask questions of older people I mean they've got all kind of things in their heart and their mind that they can share with you that will be good for you maybe they made mistakes that they can help you not make just by asking questions so yeah we're just encouraging them to to build this relationship with their mom, with their dad, with other significant people in their lives who are older than they are and seek to learn from them. Well, you, you, this is really good. This is really good. On page 35, you said something similar to what you just articulated, that it, it asking for help is not a sign of weakness to seek help. It's a sign of strength. That's a quote from you in your book. Yep. How, how do let's 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 morph this up about 15 20 years how does a 35 to 45 year old man or beyond why do we struggle with this area what, what is the big deception with men when they fail to ask for help because they think it's a sign of weakness you know I think uh, I think it has to do with our sense of self-worth and we we tend to believe that that self-worth is from being intelligent and knowing things and consequently, we don't want to act like we don't know anything. <laughs> the reality is the most intelligent among us knows about that much of what there is to be known. You know, Sir Isaac Newton, one of the most brilliant men in history, said, sometimes I feel like I'm a young man walking on the beach, once in a while finding a unique shell, while all the breadth of knowledge lies as an ocean before me. Wow. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> I have never heard that quote before. Yeah. And once we, once we accept reality that, that none of us, we, some of us know a lot about some things. You know, I know a lot of things about relationships because I've spent a lifetime there. But there's a whole bunch of stuff I don't know much about at all. But if I encounter somebody who has spent a lot of time in that area, man, I can learn from them. And so uh, it's it's getting over the thing that I have to appear uh, to be intelligent so that uh, I will feel good about myself. Uh, look, all of us have a level of intelligence, but the more we ask, the more we reach out for help, the more we learn. Well, it's funny. I had a meeting yesterday with a, a new, brand new friend of mine named Kent Evans. Kent has a ministry out of Kentucky called a manhood journey. And so we just called to collaborate. Well, he said, well, before I launched this ministry full-time, I'd be, I was a full-time SEO guy, computer marketing. If you ever need help, I go, actually, our <laughs> website right now is blocking people from Google. I mean, we, you know, he's like, what? So he spent an hour on the phone coaching me, teaching me, encouraged me, and then sent this beautiful email with steps we need to take. And I'm thinking, thank God I had the courage to say, I need help, brother. Instead of, you know what I mean? Absolutely. We need help. If, if yeah. men would understand understand this, that we need to lock arms with others. And so that's so important. So I want to jump down to choice number four. Choice number four in this generation, I think is really important for a man to understand that choose to be successful. And then you said, work hard. Yeah. Talk to us about that in this generation. Yeah. You know, I think uh, we all use the word success, you know, different ways, of course. But a young man wants to, he wants to accomplish things. He wants to, he wants to be somebody. And what we're saying is, okay, that's great. Work hard. Yeah. That's the way you accomplish things. Work hard. And let's start while you're in the teenage years. So let's work hard at school. Let's really dig into things. But let's also work at home. And, I, and we say, you know, maybe ask your mother 
is there something I could do this week to help you here at the house? Whoa, once you pick her up off the floor, (laughs) she'll probably tell you something and you can do it. Or you can say to your father, you know, could you teach me how to do this? I'd like to know how to do this. And so you work at learning how to do things and you work hard at them. Uh, I was uh, some time ago, uh, Jim, I was talking to a group of professional football players and they started talking about when they would age out of the game and no longer be able to play football. And they said, you know, the problem is we don't know how to do anything else. Yeah. We've been playing football since we were kids and we don't know how to do anything else. So I say to dads and moms, make a list of what you like your child to know how to do by the time they're 18 and age appropriately. You begin to teach them how to do those things. And to the young person, we're saying, man, you dig it. You, you, get, you, you jump on it and you learn everything you can. You work hard. You learn to work hard as a teenager. You'll work hard as an adult, and you will be successful. Well, that's, you know, my kids used to cry and whine about how, you know, uh, their grandparents gave them their first car, older older cars, and how I made them get a job and pay for the insurance and their gas. None of my yeah. friends have to do that, and we're playing three sports and getting 3.5 and up grade point. I go, yeah, <laughs> you're right. And so about a year ago, we had a family gathering, and my youngest son said, Dad, thank you for not being – for not being soft on us because so many people are soft and we aren't because they learn to work hard. And that's really important. It's really, really important in this day and age for men to not spoil, you know, to be a bulldozer dad with their kids, you know, or a mom to be a, you know, a helicopter mom, but to, to, to compel them to work hard and to contribute around their, their world. So, Hey, we're running out of time and I, and I really appreciated uh, some of these. We've had a lot of uh, podcast episodes on being sexually responsible, drugs, alcohol, tobacco, marijuana, uh, friendships, uh, investing in others. I want to, I want to hit on a topic I think is really important and we'll close it out, which is choice number five, which is respect girls and women. Yeah. You know, my marriage for the most part has defined a lot of my life, right? Who I chose to marry has really been a game changer for me, right? And so why is respecting girls and women or why is respecting a a young man's mother and his sisters or the women at school and his teachers, why is that so important in a young man who chooses or any man who chooses greatness? Well, you know, I think because God made us male and female and we are equal in his sight, equally valuable, equally made in his image. And and in our culture, in certain segments of our culture, even the songs put women down, Mm -hmm. have negative words about women. And and that many of the teenagers are hearing this kind of thing. So we're trying to say here on the front end, you learn to respect this person because she's made in the image of God. And there's a good chance that someday you're going to marry a woman. And so let's learn how to respect, first of all, your mother and your grandmother and your sister and other women in your in your life and you learn how to respect them it's going to be to your advantage when you come to the place where you are thinking about marriage because every woman wants to be respected just like every man wants to be respected and you treat them with dignity and and respect and you're developing a skill an attitude in life that's going to serve you well all of your life well, and as you're speaking, Gary, I thought that these young men, I, I wish I would have done this better to respect the women I was dating. And here's why, because that woman, you know, the women I dated, many of them was, was not the one I married. I married one. 
that's the one that matters. And so to respect that woman, one of the women I dated was my wife's best friend later on in life. And I'm so glad I respected her and honored her boundaries because that oh. stuff is, it can come back to really hurt you. And so we need to really respect the woman that we're dating if you're a young man, because that's probably not your wife. And you probably want the guy dating your future wife to respect her as well. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So, and I love what yeah. you said on page 74 of your book, Gary. You said, we want you to be a man who respects all women in public and private. So yeah. highlight that private. What does that mean? I think it means treating her as though she were your sister or your mother, you know, which you already can yeah. come to respect, hopefully. And, uh, and it also means not what you've already said, not violating her guidelines or your guidelines in terms of what the the nature of the relationship and particularly in the sexual area. Uh, because if we take advantage of a, of a woman and treat her like she was an object for us to get pleasure out of, we violated the basic re reality of, of her value and her worth. She's not a thing, she's a person. And that's why we also touch in that whole thing on pornography because pornography treats women as an object rather than as a person. And uh, that is denigrating to a woman. Yeah, that is true. So there's a verse in the Bible, and I'm taking it out of, slightly out of context. It says, the woman is the glory of man. And when I look at that, and I, I take this as that woman, when she walks out of the room in public, she radiates how her husband treats her in the private life. Have you, mm. have you noticed truth in that statement? Like, can you look at a woman who walks in your office and go, oh man, I can tell something's going on behind closed doors here that is really creating um, a, a, a haggard look on this woman? Yeah, you know, you can't always know what's behind it, yeah. but you can always tell whether a woman is vibrant, you know, she's alive, she's, you know, tuned in or whether she's down and she's depressed and she's discouraged. You don't know what brought that on, mm -hmm. but you can, you can tell which way they're either positively leaning or negatively leaning. And of course, normally when they come for counseling, they have a downward, uh, they have a downward perspective and they're trying to find help for the struggles that they're going through. We had a friend of ours on, Paul Friesen, recently, and uh, he's written several books on marriage and he talks about the eight cow wife. And this guy who married this very, very average looking woman, but he paid the ultimate price for her, which was eight cows in his village. And she became the beauty of the village because she mm. saw herself as something that he, the way he saw her. So, hey, we are, uh, so we're out of time today. And I, I mean, I, I know we're on limited time today, but I just want to say thank you for coming on, uh, taking your limited time, being with us and sharing your heart and your vibrancy and, and uh, just your running away race so well. So I want to thank you very much, uh, Gary, for coming on our show today. Well, thank you, Jim. It's good to be with you and good to be with your guys. Keep up the good work. All right, man. Hey, God bless you. Thank you. Same to you. All right. So, guys, uh, God bless Gary. And, guys, what are we going to do next? What action step will you take because of what you heard today? What will you do because of what you heard? And we got a couple choices here. Here's what I'm going to do. Man, if you have not done this yet, go to the number five, fivelovelanguages.com. Take, have you and your wife take the love languages test, figure out what your love languages are. When you learn how to love your wife and what language speaks to her, it is marriage changing. So I highly, highly recommend that you do that. Hey guys, make sure you head on over to menandarena.org, grab your free copy of my newest book, Man Laws. 
101 ways to have your man card revoked and rules to live by. This is the funniest book, the most enjoyable book I've ever written. It is hilarious. You are going to love it. It's going to cost you an email to get it, though, guys. You're going to have a great time with that. So, guys, until next time, feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Grind it out. And be a man on mission. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men for from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.